what's going on is we are all paying in one way or another, either through inflation or through higher interest rates or through higher taxes, whatever it is, we're all paying for this deficit spending. The root problem or is the deficit, the root cure is to put a leash back on the federal government. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtka. Today's guest is Professor Anthony Davies, who is an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. He is also the author of a number of books, including the recently co-authored book, Cooperation and Coercion, published by ISI Books in 2020. He joins us today to talk about the current state of the Biden economy and how to work our way out of it. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Anthony, there's much to talk about, especially in light of the the news cycle uh, and recent updates on inflation that we've heard. But perhaps the best place to start would be uh, asking if you could help put the pieces together of our current economy. How do supply chain shortages, high inflation, and a recession all fit together? Well, this is really interesting because it it's looking back over the past two years, I, I would almost have to conclude that the people in Washington are brilliantly trained in economics because if I, as a PhD in economics, were to sit back and think, what steps would I take if I wanted to completely tank a major economy? I'd do pretty much exactly what they did, <laughs> which is astounding because you, you would think that if, if they don't know what they're doing by random chance, they'd occasionally do something right. But what's been happening, and this actually goes back, well, it goes back way well beyond the the housing crisis, but we see things start to really ramp up with the housing crisis of the government stepping into the economy in even ways that were unprecedented for our federal government. And we have the the, the bank bailouts of the of 2008, and then we have the overhaul of the health care uh, with uh, with the Affordable Care Act, and then we have the sh- with uh, with COVID the shutting down of the economy, where the government actually comes in. Now, I, I should give credit to the federal government here; it was done more at the state level. But state governments stepping in and shutting down huge swaths of the economy, with what I could only think is in, in, on in the heads of the politicians, this idea that, well, we'll turn it off today and in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, we'll turn it back on again. You can't do that. The economy is this very complex uh, interwoven web of relationships. You shut the thing down to turn it back on requires reestablishing all of those intricate relationships. And that takes time. And this is what we're experiencing now with the the supply chain shortages. This is our economy attempting to reconstruct what the politicians broke back when they closed us down for COVID. That's an excellent point. And I'd like to kind of dive in a little more in in particular, because I think kind of generally, you know, I think I can understand 
what's causing the supply chain issues, even the inflation. One piece of the puzzle that I've not quite grasped is the labor shortage. Now, I understand when the government was essentially paying people to stay home, I I get why that would lead to a labor shortage. I also understand many baby boomers retired early and so they took themselves you know, voluntarily or not so voluntarily out of the labor market. What's going on when, when restaurants or retail stores are saying we just can't find people or there's no people to, to do the jobs that we used to have? We still have the same number of people in this country, relatively speaking, or at least I think we do. So can you help explain the labor shortage? Yeah. Now, our unemployment rate is back down to where it was prior to COVID. So in, in that sense, you know, seeing a labor shortage is not surprising. But then in another sense, you can go back to prior to COVID and nobody was arguing about a labor shortage then. What's different between then and now? One of the things that's possibly different is the is the emergence of the gig economy. People, you know, driving for Uber or working for DoorDash or, or you know, renting out their houses through Airbnb or whatever it is. This gig economy is is a new thing in that it is unclear how to classify these people. So if I get most of my livelihood from driving for Uber, well, on the one hand, I'm not an employee of Uber, but on the other hand, I may not have filed the appropriate paperwork to show up as a small business either. And so it's not entirely clear how we count people like that. Now we'll figure it out, but for the moment we haven't figured this out. And so there's this chunk of people who are in in one sense working and in another sense aren't showing up as working. And you might say, well, it can't be that many until you start to look at the survey data. And the survey data indicate that about one third of American workers say that they have some side gig going on with Uber, DoorDash, or or what have you. And of those who have this side gig going on, one third of those say that it's their main source of income. So this is a a major new player in the labor market that we haven't figured out. So I think that's, that's part of what's going on here. Another part of what's going on is we say there's a shortage of labor. What we really mean is there's a shortage of labor at the current wage rates. So if you want more workers, you can easily get them. Just you know, increase your, the wages you're offering by 25%. And of course, businesses aren't willing to do that. And part, part of what's at play here is uncertainty. When the federal government stepped in, when the state, state and federal government stepped in at COVID and dramatically gave a, instituted a heavy hand in controlling the economy, this scared a lot of businesses not just businesses that were shut down from COVID, but businesses like uh, rental properties. If I'm a landlord and all of a sudden politicians are saying they're going to cap how much I can charge my uh, renters. All of this stuff is very scary to business owners. And if you scare business owners, they will be reticent to make long-term plans. And one of the long-term movements is a is dramatic increase in wage rates. I can, I can tomorrow, if I've got a, a good business, increase my wages to my workers, but I can't cut it because then I have some very unhappy workers. So what am I going to do? I'm only going to push those wages up 
if I see a path forward long term, things are going to be good and I can I can make this back on on the back end through through, you know, efficiencies or raising prices or whatever it is. But if you put me in a as we've done into an environment of uncertainty where I don't know what the future is going to look like six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road, I'm going to be very reticent to raise wages. And if I'm reticent to raise wages, I have difficulty finding workers. And now we have exactly what we're talking about, this apparent labor shortage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially um, in my own personal experience. My wife is actually about to open a small business at the end of this month. And in the negotiation with her landlord, there, there are certain clauses in the contract as to, you know, what happens, who basically who who foots the bill if the government were to shut down the economy the way that happened under COVID? Does the landlord, you know, who perhaps, I don't know, has a mortgage on that building, does he keep paying the mortgage? Does she pay, you know, rent? Right. Or right. is there, you know, and I, they came up with some arrangement that sort of, you know, could uh, to, to the best extent possible mutually protect both of them in such an event. But these are all new questions and they certainly do impact the the planning that businesses have to think about. Another related topic on inflation is gas prices. We saw gas prices absolutely through the roof. They're still very high, but especially last June. And they've come down a bit in the last few months, but they're still about the same level of inflation, 16%. I'm wondering if you can talk about how and why the price of oil has dropped since June. What is that, you know, can you explain, you know, if policies caused that or what, what it was driving that? There are lots of things at play here. Um, you know, one of the things that people say as well, we can blame Joe Biden for shutting down the, the um, XL pipeline and to, to defend Joe Biden a bit here. He didn't shut down any pipeline. What he did was stop the development of a new pipeline. Now, is that going to have an effect on gas prices, oil prices? Ultimately, yes, it will. But that's going to be down the road. That's not having an effect right now. One of the major things that was having an effect right now is the uncertainty with Russia and the Ukraine. Now, that's kind of died down a bit of late. But when that first started, this is a serious matter. This is a major nuclear power going to war with a country that we would, given the choice, go in and defend. And anytime you have uncertainty like that, you create a an environment in markets where people are going to they're they're going to come cut back they're going to be uncertain about what's going on you're going to get some hoarding so you get you know prices of gas fluctuate prices of oil fluctuating now one thing to bear in mind here this is not new territory we've seen this before in fact uh, the last time gas prices shot up to the level they have adjusted for inflation, they actually shot up somewhat higher. I think the peak was uh, $5.50 versus the peak was about $5 this time. And this was, I forget the year. I should have looked this up before we talked about this. It wasn't that long ago, five, 10 years ago, gas prices shot up like this. And within about six months of that peak, I think the gas prices peaked in July of whatever year we're talking about, approximately 10 years ago. And then they dropped 60%, six zero within six months. So by December of that same year, the gas prices had been 550 or down to like 260. 
I would not be surprised to see the same kind of thing play out here. Now, I'm not saying we're going to see 260 a gallon gas come December, but I don't think we're going to be seeing the high prices that we're currently seeing. And what's going on? What's going on is you get through whatever crisis this is, things start to calm down, you get back to business as usual, and prices come back to where they should be. Now, I don't think we're going to see prices come back down to where they were pre-COVID because there's another factor at play. And this other factor at play is this unprecedented, at least in modern times, inflation that we've been feeling for the past year or so. And can you talk about the, the root causes of that inflation? Obviously, the government, you know, spending spending too much money and, and monetary policy plays into that. What, what are for you? What are the what are the causes? And I would also be curious if you could comment, you know, did you would you have anticipated, let's say there was a Republican administration as opposed to a Democratic administration? Would you have anticipated similar inflation, you know, in light of the, the covid stimulus and things like that that were passed? I, I, yeah, I think so. And, you know, we can look at at least a little bit of evidence with Joe Biden and before him, President Trump. And we see the same kind of deficit spending. And that I I propose is the root problem here. Perhaps the place to begin is to think about what inflation is and what causes it. There are lots of things that will impinge in the short run, but long term, inflation is what you get when your money supply grows faster than your economy. You get more dollars chasing relatively fewer goods and services, and so prices go up. So as Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And I think, broadly speaking, that's about right. You start printing more money and and you get inflation. Now, all of this connects with these deficits we've been having, because what goes on here, the United States, the federal government, of course, has been running deficits since the Eisenhower administration. And small footnote here, people say that Bill Clinton had surpluses. Bill Clinton did not have surpluses. He came very close. And if you look at the official deficit data, it will show surplus. But if you look at the debt, you'll see that the debt rose every year Clinton was in office. What was going on there was a little bit of behind the scenes redefinition of taking money out of Social Security and the federal government calling that an income rather than calling it borrowing from Social Security. Right. So it's like uh, you or I go to a cash machine, take a cash advance on our credit card and call it income. Yeah, that's not exactly right. But nonetheless. And even similarly, if, you know, if we have an endowment to fund certain programs and, you know, now to some extent, when we, you know, fulfilling donor intent, take the percentage that we're allotted to take. To some some extent, it could be so. So, in one sense, it could be income if you have the growth in your investment portfolio. But if you were just to simply move money over from the endowment to your, you know, general funds, it's not income. You're just you're just giving yourself money from another pot. Right, right. You're taking money out of one pot and calling it income. Exactly, but. But what we have is since Clinton, we've been running some serious deficits. They were, of course, got worse under 9-11. They got worse still after 2008 housing crisis, worse again with COVID. And I think they're going to get worse still, particularly now that Joe Biden has opened the floodgates to forgiving student loans. The problem here is 
we've got to a point where our federal government is spending more money than it brings in, so much so that it's running out of places to borrow. Because, I mean, what does the federal government do? When it spends more than it brings in, it does what the rest of us do, do, it, it borrows the money. But the federal government has borrowed so much, it's kind of running out of places to borrow, which means that the Federal Reserve is having to step in. And the federal government will borrow as much as it can from citizens, from foreign governments, from companies, this kind of a thing. And if it still needs to borrow more, the Federal Reserve steps in and loans it. But here's the difference. When the Federal Reserve loans money, it increases the money supply. The way it does it is by printing money. And so we're getting this inflation, which is caused by the printing of the money, which is caused by the federal government having to borrow so much, which is caused by deficit spending. And that's ultimately the thing. You know, we were all cheering. Well, not all of us, but a lot of us were cheering back in 2020 when the federal government was cutting everybody checks. And economists shook their heads and they said, no, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You're going to pay for these checks. And sure enough, the inflation we're feeling now is part payment for those checks. There's a lot that you said that I want to unpack from the deficit to the student loan forgiveness. But one last question on inflation, the way out of inflation, if you were an advisor to President Biden or to to Congress, how do we get out of the mess? Because I don't think the 31 trillion plus in in and debt is going to be going away anytime soon. So what is the path out of a reset out of a inflate this inflation bubble look like? Well, the the path out of inflation is for the Federal Reserve to stop increasing the money supply. And you we see this of late the Federal Reserve trying to roll back what it's done. By raising Um, interest rates, is that? Right, yeah. So raising interest rates is shorthand for contracting the money supply. That's really what's going on here. And, you know, the problem there is if the Federal Reserve cuts back on the money supply and the federal government continues to deficit spend, what happens is we get higher, higher interest rates. So, Again, we're paying. We're not paying in the form of inflation, but we're paying in the form of, you know, our mortgage interest is now three times what it was before. We're back to this idea of no such thing as a free lunch. What's going on is we are all paying in one way or another, either through inflation or through higher interest rates or through higher taxes, whatever it is, we're all paying for this deficit spending. The root problem or is the deficit, the root cure is to put a leash back on the federal government, that the federal government cannot spend more than it brings in. I have a question on tax cuts, and specifically the, the Laffer curve, because I think during the Trump administration, we had you know deficit-funded tax cuts. We cut taxes, but we didn't necessarily cut our expenses. And I think the idea is that if you cut taxes you know, enough, there'll be economic growth and that Maybe in the long run, you'll generate revenue to make up for that. And, you know, people, many people are familiar with the idea of the Laffer curve under Reagan. I I guess my question for you is, is, is the Laffer curve, is it a law of economics? Is it always true? Or is it only true maybe in situations when you have, you know, ridiculously high tax rates and in cutting it, you really, you really do see a lot of innovation and growth. Is it universally true or is it? circumstantial. Well, <laughs> yeah, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> the the yes part is look, here's what we know. Def and this is definitionally true. If the government taxes us at 0%, it will collect 0 dollars. 
And if the government taxes us at 100%, it will also collect $0 because nobody's going to bother working. Now, what happens between 0 and 100% is unclear. Now, Laffer drew this nice, smooth curve and said there's this sweet spot in the center where if your tax rate is, your tax revenue is maximum. I don't know whether this, and no economist knows whether this uh, Laffer curve is nice and smooth like that or whether it has hills and valleys throughout. And I would imagine that what plays as well is not just simply the tax, the tax rate, but how we come up with it. If, for example, we did something and said, okay, we're going to tax everybody 18% of their income, no deductions, no exemptions, no distinguishing between capital gains and wages and all. Just, if you get a dollar, you pay 18 cents, period. You could imagine taxing like that, very, very clean. And you can imagine doing it the way we do it now with thousands and thousands of pages of tax code that at the end, when all the dust settles, collects the same 18% of our income that that very simple method would collect. Now, that first method is going to give you much more tax revenue. The reason it'll give you much more tax revenue is because it's very clear what's going on. I, as a consumer or I, as a business person, know exactly what happens if I make the following decisions because I know how it's going to impact my taxes. Today, with the tax code we have now, I call it tax roulette. Every April 14th, I fill out my tax forms. Am I going to get a return? Am I going to get money back? Am I going to owe money? I don't know. I'm an economist and I don't know. It's so complicated, right? And because of that, I can't make decisions well because I'm not entirely sure what the implication is for me. And because of that, I'll tend to make more, how should I say, I'll be more reticent in my decision making rather than more forward thinking. It's that forward thinking and being sure about your decisions. That's what gives you a nice, growing, vibrant economy. What would the tax code look like if you were, if you were the the taxes are? What's your preferred? Yeah, I you know I I tend to the more I think about it, the more I tend to favor a consumption tax because it tends to do it tends to do the thing we think about when people say things like the rich need to pay more. What they have in their minds is not the guy who's out there working 80-hour weeks to build a business and hiring people and paying them good wages and this, and as a consequence, he does a good job and he ends up being a millionaire. That's not the guy that people think of when they say the rich should pay more. What they think about is the trust fund baby who isn't producing anything and worth millions of dollars that somebody else earned. That's who they think about. Now, Consider those two cases. In the first case, this guy who's working hard, who built a business, he's earning income. And maybe he's not consuming much of it. He lives a frugal life. Don't tax his income. Tax his consumption. He's being frugal. That's exactly what we want. The other guy who's sitting on his butt, not doing anything, but, you know, living large, tax him. That's a consumption tax. So my favorite thing would be a consumption tax across the board, no exemptions, no deductions, nothing. Just it's whatever the number is. It'd probably be around 18%. 18% of what you of what you spend, that's what you're taxed. On the topic of higher education, there's a lot of problems with higher ed. I think there's both cultural problems with it. There's economic problems with it. You know, President Biden's recent solution to some of the economic costs associated was simply to forgive students up to $10,000 worth of debt. 
Uh, but of course, he did not address any of the structural problems, which is largely, you know, caused and created by the federal government support for our broken education system. So I'm curious how you think that specific policy of debt forgiveness is going to restructure the incentives within higher education. Yeah, this is going to be horrible. It's going to be horrible on a number of counts. First, you have now said to students, it doesn't matter so much if you are diligent when you go to college, if you work hard. It doesn't matter as much what you choose to study, that you study something that has has high market value. And so two things are going to come from that. One is we're going to see an increase in the number of students coming to college who are less interested in an education than they are in an all expenses paid for your vacation. And so you're, we're going to get an influx of students like this. Also, the students who are there in the college are going to be more apt or I shouldn't say more apt, they're going to be less fearful of studying things that don't have much market value. So here I am, and I could go one of two ways. I could go into accounting or I could go into medieval poetry. And with accounting, I can earn enough to pay back my loans. With medieval poetry, not so much. Well, if you're going to forgive my loans, then you know I'm freer now than I was before to go study the medieval poetry. And who cares? Well, all of us should care because Medieval poetry is a wonderful thing, and absolutely it would make the student a better educated person. But when we're talking about loan forgiveness, what matters isn't what's good for that student. What matters is what's good for the rest of us, because it's the rest of us who are paying for the thing. And I can tell you that the rest of us would rather have that student study accounting. How do I know? Because that's exactly what the wage rate is. It's the signal of how much we society want one more person who studied accounting versus one more person who studied medieval poetry. So what what policies might you recommend to bring some market discipline to higher education? Well, I, th- I, I there is a policy, I think, that would change higher education overnight. And, and as I get into this policy, I've, I've left off a couple of other bad things are going to happen from loan forgiveness. One is Uh, colleges looking to, you know, they're already highly competitive, looking to attract more of these students who are coming in now are going to be pushing the easier majors. They're going to be saying to the students, particularly the ones who no one's going to admit it, but we know they're looking for, you know, four years, all expense paid vacation. Look, come here and study this major and it's going to be easy. We're not going to, you know, require much of you. You're going to get a proliferation of majors like that precisely because Colleges can use it to market to students. And then you're going to have a problem at the federal level because all of a sudden we're going to have a bunch of students hitting the job market who aren't well prepared for whatever reason. Maybe it's what they studied or what they did while they were there. And the federal government's going to want to have a say in what's going on in higher education. It's going to say, look, we're spending all of this money on higher education. And what are we getting for it? Not much. These people who are graduating, they can't, they can't get gainful employment. So we, Congress, are now going to step in and we're going to start to regulate higher education. We're going to get public schools 2.0. 
Congress will make the same mess of higher education that lower levels of government have already made of public education. And that brings us around to your question of, well, what's the best policy here? And I can tell you there's a very simple policy. You say, henceforth, all student loans must be financed by college endowments, specifically the colleges to which the students go. So if I go to Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Massachusetts Institute of Technology's endowment is what is going to fund my education. And when I get a job and I have to pay back my student loans, who am I paying it back to? I'm paying it back to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And notice what happens if you do that. If you require the colleges and universities to loan directly to the students out of their endowments, all of a sudden overnight, every college and university across the country is going to become laser focused on producing students who have high market value. Because if they don't, those students won't be able to pay back those loans. Now, what we have done now with student loan forgiveness is the polar opposite of that. Rather than making universities bear the cost of poor decision-making, of producing students who don't have market value, we've taken that cost, we put it on the backs of taxpayers. That's a very interesting idea. I actually like that a lot and, and haven't heard that. So that's, I definitely agree with you on that one. Shifting gears a little bit, one of the topics we were discussing at ISI's recent American Economic Forum was the concept of, of geoeconomics. And so I was wondering how your overall view of economics, politics, and international relations fits together. And, and do, do your economic decisions change if you're you know, dealing with a trading partner like China, for example, that you know, perhaps uses economic warfare in ways that might adversely you know, affect your industrial base, for example. Yeah, and I think the place to start with a conversation like this is to note what free trade is. And you'll get countries saying, you know, well, we have, we're going to have a free trade agreement. The ultimate free trade agreement is a blank piece of paper. Because free trade is what happens when governments don't involve themselves in economic transactions across borders. And we say things like China trades with the United States. China doesn't trade with the United States. People in China trade with people in the United States. The two governments step in and, and alter or restrict those transactions, that trade between the people. Now, understanding that free trade is what you get when each government steps back and doesn't do anything what do you do when one government decides it's going to alter the playing field by subsidizing an industry, uh, a domestic industry, to give it a, a leg up on the world market? And all of a sudden, you're in a position now where, well, the United States workers could produce steel more cheaply than Chinese workers, except that now they don't. And that's in part due to China's government stepping in and subsidizing these things, what's the appropriate response? A lot of people say, well, the appropriate response is for the United States government to do the same thing on this end. And you you just end up, well, <laughs> you end up in a trade war with each government trying to one-up the other one. In, in a lot of ways, it, this is going to sound, sound horrible, but in a lot of ways, the best thing to do is not do anything. 
And yeah, this is going to be hurting us in a sense because China is subsidizing its exports of steel. But another way to look at it is, yes, it's hurting American steel manufacturers, no question. But who's benefiting are American steel consumers. Amongst them, American automobile manufacturers who are a major purchaser of steel. So what China's really done in a way is to force the Chinese people through taxes to provide discounts for American consumers who are buying steel. And when you see it in that light, you say, okay, well, I don't like this, but maybe it's not the horrible thing I thought it was. And would you draw any distinctions in, I guess, areas of of national security? One example I think back to, you know, because in one sense, you know, there might be many motivations for why China might be subsidizing their export industry, and not not all of them might be nefarious in the sense of of, of waging warfare. They they might have other other reasons for doing it. But I think back to John Adams, for example, after the War of eighteen twelve, and he had picked up on this pattern where after every conflict with Great Britain, but particularly after the War of eighteen twelve, you know the British were concerned that you know, the U.S. had developed all sorts of industries during the war, and they were worried, well, if, if if America were to maintain these industries, perhaps they'd be an industrial or military power that could compete with us. And so they flooded the, you know, they, they intentionally dumped, you know, with with most likely the help of, of their government products into our market at a loss, not even just because they wanted to prop up certain industries, but with the expressed intent of destroying manufacturing base of another nation or potentially a rival military nation. Would you make any distinctions in terms of national security? Yeah, I suppose I suppose as a practical matter, you have to. A good case in point is what's going on right now in Germany with this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Russia now is threatening to cut down or already has cut back on the amount of natural gas that it supplies to Germany. Germany now has a problem because it relied on that natural gas. And that calls to mind, uh, uh, you know, the thought, well, maybe we should have had a policy that we um, we helped to to grow our domestic energy industry so we weren't as dependent on foreigners. And you can make arguments like that. And I, I, don't, I don't deny them, but I do put a big footnote on them. They're short-run arguments. In the long run, there's this interesting phenomenon that is countries that trade more tend to be more peaceful toward each other. And if you think it through, that kind of makes sense. If, for example, the United States trades a lot with, pick an example, China, what does that mean? That means that there are a lot of people in the United States who are having dealings with a lot of people who are in China and they get to know each other as people do. You know, you're buying and selling. You get to know each other at least on some some level, if not, if not at a deep level, a superficial level, but you know each other. You're human beings. You make that connection. And once a people makes connection with another people, it becomes very difficult for those two people's governments to go to war because the people won't stand for it. What does a government do when it goes to war with another one? It tries to convince the populace that those people over there are somewhat less than human and that it's okay for us to go and bomb them or whatever it does. But if you know those people and they know you, that becomes much harder. And so if you look at the data, what you see is this pattern. Countries that engage in more trade with each other tend to be more peaceful. 
and you have less of the problem that would require what we're talking about right now, which is is uh, economic policies to to protect you from from foreign countries. Well, I think that's a good segue to our last question. Uh, you are the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at FEE. And I'm wondering if you could speak, especially just a little bit for our students, about the enduring legacy of Friedman and some of his contributions that might be relevant to us today. I know that's a big question, but maybe you can hit on some highlights. Yeah, uh, Friedman Friedman is my hero and for a couple of reasons. One, he was a brilliant economist. But he does what I, I try to emulate him as best I can, and, and to emulate Friedman is a really hard thing to do. He's he's an astounding guy. He could speak to non-economists and help them to understand complex economic ideas in ways that, that regular people, regular non-economists could could deal with. And more than that, he was very kind. He could he could tell you to your face that you're wrong, but say it in such a way that you're so pleased to hear it. <laughs> And I would say to to students particularly, a good place to go. They're old videos, but don't 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 think that they aren't worthwhile. They're old videos, but go to YouTube and look up the interviews. There's a series of them of Friedman with Phil Donahue, who was a talk show host back in the day. Phil Donahue, and you'll see that kind of back and forth of Donahue's poking him. Um, you know, making arguments that are anti-market and Friedman coming back very politely laughing and smiling, saying, no, 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 this is the way it is. So look at that. And also look at the series free to choose, which is all deals with a lot of uh, Friedman's teachings and you'll see his, his stuff there. And I think that's the way forward. If you want to think of Friedman as a, as a model, someone who understands economics and all of us should, even as those of us who aren't economists as voters, we should kind of try and understand a bit about what's going on just to be well-informed, useful citizens in that sense. And, and to do so without denigrating people who disagree with us to, to smile and say, yeah, you know what? We agree on the ends People should earn a living wage, but I just disagree with the way you're going about it. I think it's going to have bad effects. Hey, look at this other thing over here. Here's an alternative to how we might get the same thing. And I think that's the approach we need to take rather than saying, well, you disagree with me, so you're evil or stupid or both. Well, on that note, uh, we will conclude. Thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. If people want to continue to follow your work or read more, where can they find you? You, I have a weekly podcast, Words and Numbers. It's on all the podcast players. And you can f- see that along with YouTube videos and all sorts of other things at wordsandnumbers.org. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Anthony. And thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.